0: section twenty-one of beacon lights of history volume eight great rulers by john lord this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by k hand frederick the great part two the real gainer by the war if gainer there was was england since she was enabled to establish a maritime supremacy and develop her manufacturing and mercantile resources much needed in her future struggles to resist napoleon she also gained colonial possessions a foothold in india and the possession of canada this war entangled europe and led to great battles not in germany merely but around the world it was during this war when france and england were antagonistic forces that the military genius of washington was first developed in america the victories of clive and hastings soon after followed in india the greatest loser in this war was france she lost provinces and military prestige The war brought to light the decrepitude of the Bourbon rule. The marshals of France, with superior forces, were disgracefully defeated. The war plunged France in debt, only to be paid by a roaring conflagration of anarchies. The logical sequence of the war was in those discontents and taxes which prepared the way for the French Revolution—a catastrophe or a new birth, as men differently view it. The effect of the war on Austria was a loss of prestige, the beginning of the dismemberment of the empire, and the revelation of internal weakness. Though Maria Theresa gained general sympathy and won great glory by her vigorous government and the heroism of her troops, she was a great loser. Besides the loss of men and money, Austria ceased to be the great threatening power of Europe. From this war, England, until the close of the career of Napoleon, was really the most powerful state in Europe, and became the proudest as for prussia the principal transgressor and actor it is more difficult to see the actual results the immediate effects of the war were national impoverishment an immense loss of life and a fearful demoralization the limits of the kingdom were enlarged and its military and political power was established it became one of the leading states of continental europe surpassed only by austria russia and france it led to great standing armies and a desire of aggrandizement it made the army the center of all power and the basis of social prestige it made frederick the second the great military hero of that age and perpetuated his policy in prussia bismarck is the sequel and sequence of frederick it was by aggressive and unscrupulous wars that the romans were aggrandized and it was also by the habits and tastes which successful war created that rome was ultimately undermined the roman empire did not last like the chinese empire although at one period it had more glory and prestige so war both strengthens and impoverishes nations but i believe that the violation of eternal principles of right ultimately bring a fearful penalty it may be long delayed but it will finally come as in the sequel of the wicked wars of louis the fourteenth and napoleon bonaparte victor hugo in his history of a great crime on the principle of everlasting justice forewarned napoleon the little of his future reverses while nations and kingdoms in view of his marvelous successes hailed him as a friend of civilization and hugo lived to see the fulfillment of his prophecy moreover it may be urged that the prussian people ground down by an absolute military despotism the mere tools of an ambitious king were not responsible for the atrocious conquests of frederick the second the misrule of monarchs does not bring permanent degradation on a nation unless it shares the crimes of its monarch as in the case of the romans when the leading idea of the people was military conquest from the very commencement of their state the prussians in the time of frederick were a sincere patriotic and religious people they were simply enslaved and suffered the poverty and misery which were entailed by war after frederick had escaped the peril of the seven years war it is surprising he should so soon have become a party to another atrocious crime the division and dismemberment of poland but here both russia and austria were also participants sarmatia fell unwept without a crime and i am still more amazed that carlyle should cover up this crime with his sophistries no man in ordinary life would be justified in seizing his neighbor's property because he was weak and his property was mismanaged we might as well justify russia in attempting to seize turkey although such a crime may be overruled in the future good of england But Carlyle is an Englishman, and the English seized and conquered India because they wanted it, not because they had a right to it. The same laws which bind individuals also bind kings and nations. Free nations from the obligations which bind individuals, and the world would be an anarchy. Grant that Poland was not fit for self-government, this does not justify its political annihilation. The heart of the world exclaimed against that crime at the time, and the injuries of that unfortunate state are not yet forgotten carlyle says the partition of poland was an operation of almighty providence and the eternal laws of nature a key to his whole philosophy which means if it means anything that as great fishes swallow up the small ones and wild beasts prey upon each other and eagles and vultures devour other birds it is all right for powerful nations to absorb the weak ones as the romans did might does not make right by the eternal decrees of god almighty written in the bible and on the consciences of mankind politicians whose primal law is expediency may justify such acts as public robbery for they are political jesuits always were and always will be and even calm statesmen looking on the overruling of events may palliate but to enlightened christians there is only one law do unto others as you would that they should do unto you nor can christian civilization reach an exalted plane until it is in harmony with the eternal laws of god Mr. Carlyle glibly speaks of Almighty Providence favoring robbery. Here he utters a falsehood, and I do not hesitate to say it, great as is his authority. God says, Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet anything which is thy neighbor's, for he is a jealous God, visiting the sins of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. We must set aside the whole authority of divine revelation to justify any crime openly or secretly committed. The prosperity of nations in the long run is based on righteousness, not on injustice, cruelty, and selfishness. It cannot be denied that Frederick well managed his stolen property. He was a man of ability, of enlightened views, of indefatigable industry, and of an iron will. I would as soon deny that Cromwell did not well govern the kingdom which he had seized on the plea of revolutionary necessity and the welfare of England, for he also was able and wise but what was the fruit of cromwell's well-intended usurpation a hideous reaction the return of the Stuarts, the dissipation of his visionary dreams and if the states which frederick seized and the empire he had founded in blood and carnage had been as well prepared for liberty as england was the consequences of his ambition might have been far different but frederick did not so much aim at the development of national resources the aim of all immortal statesmen, as at the growth and establishment of a military power. He filled his kingdom and provinces with fortresses and camps and standing armies. He cemented a military monarchy. As a wise executive ruler, the king of Prussia enforced law and order, was economical in his expenditures and kept up a rigid discipline, even rewarded merit and was friendly to learning. And he showed many interesting personal qualities for i do not wish to make him out a monster only as a great man who did wicked things and things which even cemented for the time the power of prussia he was frugal and unostentatious like charlemagne he associated with learned men he loved music and literature and he showed an amazing fortitude and patience in adversity which called out universal admiration he had a great insight into shams was rarely imposed upon and was scrupulous and honest in his dealings as an individual he was also a fascinating man when he unbent was affable intelligent accessible and unstilted he was an admirable talker and a tolerable author he always sympathized with intellectual excellence he surrounded himself with great men in all departments he had good taste and a severe dignity and despised vulgar people had no craving for fast horses and held no intercourse with hostlers and gamblers even if these gamblers had the respectable name of brokers He punished all public thieves, so that his administration at least was dignified and respectable, and secured the respect of Europe and the admiration of men of ability. The great warrior was also a great statesman, and never made himself ridiculous, never degraded his position and powers, and could admire and detect a man of genius, even when hidden from the world. He was a Tiberius, but not a Nero fiddling over national calamities, and surrounding himself with stage-players, buffoons, and idiots. But here his virtues ended he was cold selfish dissembling hard-hearted ungrateful ambitious unscrupulous without faith in either god or man so sceptical in religion that he was almost an atheist he was a disobedient son a heartless husband a capricious friend and a selfish self idolater while he was the friend of literary men he patronized those who were infidel in their creed he was not a religious persecutor because he regarded all religions as equally false and equally useful he was social among convivial and learned friends but cared little for women or female society his latter years though dignified and quiet and idle in all military circles with an immense fame and surrounded with every pleasure and luxury at sans souci were still sad and gloomy like those of most great men whose leading principle of life was vanity and egotism like those of solomon charles V, and louis the fourteenth he heard the distant rumblings if he did not live to see the lurid fires of the french revolution He had been deceived in Voltaire, but he could not mistake the logical sequence of the ideas of Rousseau, those blasting ideas which would sweep away all feudal institutions and all irresponsible tyrannies. When Mirabeau visited him, he was a quaking, suspicious, irritable, capricious, unhappy old man, though adored by his soldiers to the last, for those were the only people he ever loved, those who were willing to die for him, those who built up his throne, and when he died i suppose he was sincerely lamented by his army and his generals and his nobility for with him began the greatness of prussia as a military power so far as a life devoted to the military and political aggrandizement of a country makes a man a patriot frederick the great will receive the plaudits of those men who worship success and who forget the enormity of unscrupulous crimes and the outward glory which immediately resulted possibly of contemplative statesmen who see in the rise of a new power an instrument of the almighty for some inscrutable end to me his character and deeds have no fascination any more than the fortunate career of some one of our modern millionaires would have to one who took no interest in finance it was doubtless grateful to the dying king of prussia to hear the plaudits of his idolaters as he stood on the hither shores of eternity but his view of the spectators as they lined those shores must have been soon lost sight of and their cheering and triumphant voices unheard and disregarded as the bark in which he sailed alone put forth on the unknown ocean to meet the eternal judge of the living and the dead we leave now the man who won so great a fame to consider briefly his influence in two respects it seems to me it has been decided and impressive in the first place he gave an impulse to rationalistic inquiries in germany and many there are who think this was a good thing he made it fashionable to be cynical and doubtful being ashamed of his own language preferring the french he encouraged the current and popular french literature which in his day under the guidance of voltaire was materialistic and deistical He embraced a philosophy which looked to secondary rather than primal causes, which scouted any revelations that could not be explained by reason, or reconciled with scientific theories, that false philosophy which intoxicated Franklin and Jefferson, as well as Hume and Gibbon, and which finally culminated in Diderot and d'Alembert, the philosophy which became fashionable in German universities, and whose nearest approach was that of the exploded Epicureanism of the ancients. Under the patronage of the infidel court, the universities of Germany became filled with rationalistic professors, and the pulpits with dead and formal divines, so that the glorious old Lutheranism of Prussia became the coldest and most lifeless of all the forms which Protestantism ever assumed. Doubtless, great critics and scholars arose under the stimulus of that unbounded religious speculation which the king encouraged, but they employed their learning in pulling down rather than supporting the pillars of the ancient orthodoxy. And so rapidly did rationalism spread in northern Germany that it changed its great lights into Illuminati, who spurned what was revealed unless it was in accordance with their speculations and sweeping criticism. I need not dwell on this undisguised and blazing fact, on the rationalism which became the fashion in Germany, and which spread so disastrously over other countries, penetrating even into the inmost sanctuaries of theological instruction. All this may be progress. To my mind, it tended to extinguish the light of faith, and fill the seats of learning with cynics and unbelieving critics. It was bad enough to destroy the bodies of men in a heartless war, it was worse to nourish those principles which poisoned the soul, and spread doubt and disguised infidelities among the learned classes. But the influence of Frederick was seen in a more marked manner in the inauguration of a national policy directed chiefly to military aggrandizement if there ever was a purely military monarchy it is prussia and this kingdom has been to europe what sparta was to greece all the successors of frederick have followed out his policy with singular tenacity all their habits and associations have been military the army has been the center of their pride ambition and hope they have made their country one vast military camp they exempted no classes from military services they have honored and exalted the army more than any other interest The principal people of the land are generals. The resources of the kingdom are expended in standing armies, and these are a perpetual menace. A network of military machinery controls all other pursuits and interests. The peasant is a military slave. The student of the university can be summoned to a military camp. Precedence in rank is given to military men over merchant princes, over learned professors, over distinguished jurists. The genius of the nation has been directed to the perfection of military discipline and military weapons the government is always prepared for war and has been rarely averse to it it has ever been ready to seize a province or pick a quarrel the late war with france was as much the fault of prussia as of the government of napoleon the great idea of prussia is military aggrandizement it is no longer a small kingdom but a great empire more powerful than either austria or france it believes in new annexations until all germany shall be united under a prussian kaiser what rome became prussia aspires to be the spirit the animus of prussia is military power travel in that kingdom everywhere are soldiers military schools camps arsenals fortresses reviews and this military spirit evident during the last hundred years has made the military classes arrogant austere mechanical contemptuous This spirit pervades the nation. It despises other nations as much as France did in the last century or England after the wars of Napoleon. But the great peculiarity of this military spirit is seen in the large standing armies, which dry up the resources of the nation and make war a perpetual necessity, at least a perpetual fear. It may be urged that these armies are necessary to the protection of the state that if they were disbanded then france or some other power would arise and avenge their injuries and cripple a state so potent to do evil it may be so but still the evils generated by these armies must be fatal to liberty and antagonistic to those peaceful energies which produce the highest civilization they are fatal to the peaceful virtues the great schiller has said there exists and higher than the warrior's excellence great deeds of violence adventures wide and wonders of the moment these are not they which generate the high the blissful and the enduring majesty i do not disdain the virtues which are developed by war but great virtues are seldom developed by war unless the war is stimulated by love of liberty or the conservation of immortal privileges worth more than the fortunes or the lives of men a nation incapable of being roused in great necessities soon becomes insignificant and degenerate like greece when it was incorporated with the roman empire but i have no admiration of a nation perpetually arming and perpetually seeking political aggrandizement when the great ends of civilization are lost sight of and this is what frederick sought and his successors who cherished his ideas the legacy he bequeathed to the world was not emancipating ideas but the policy of military aggrandizement and yet has civilization no higher aim than the imitation of the ancient romans can nations progressively become strong by ignoring the spirit of christianity is a nation only to thrive by adopting the sentiments peculiar to robbers and bandits i know that prussia has not neglected education or science or industrial energy but these have been made subservient to military aims the highest civilization is that which best develops the virtues of the heart and the energies of the mind on these the strength of man is based It may be necessary for prussia in the complicated relations of governments and in view of possible dangers to sustain vast standing armies but the larger these are the more do they provoke other nations to do the same and to eat out the vitals of national wealth that nation is the greatest which seeks to reduce rather than augment forces which prey upon its resources and which are a perpetual menace and hence the vast standing armies which conquerors seek to maintain are not an aid to civilization but on the other hand tend to destroy it unless by civilization and national prosperity are meant an ever-expanding policy of military aggrandizement by which weaker and unoffending states may be gradually absorbed by irresistible despotism like that of the romans whose final and logical development proves fatal to all other nationalities and liberties yea to literature and art and science and industry the extinction of which is the moral death of an empire however grand and however boastful only to be succeeded by new creations, through the fires of successive wars and hateful anarchies. In one point, and one alone, I see the providence which permitted the military aggrandizement to which Frederick and his successors aimed, and that is, in furnishing a barrier to the future conquests of a more barbarous people, I mean the Russians, even as the conquest of Charlemagne presented a barrier to the future eruptions of barbarous tribes on his northern frontier. Russia, that rude, demoralized Slavonic Empire cannot conquer Europe until it has first destroyed the political and military power of Germany. United and patriotic, Germany can keep at present the Russians at bay and direct the stream of invasion to the east rather than the south, so that Europe will not become either Cossack or French, as Napoleon predicted. In this light, the military genius and power of Germany, which Frederick did so much to develop may be designed for the protection of European civilization and the Protestant religion. But I will not speculate on the aims of providence or the evil to be overruled for good. With my limited vision I can only present facts and their immediate consequences. I can only deduce the moral truths which are logically to be drawn from a career of wicked ambition. These truths are a part of that moral, wisdom which experience confirms, and which alone should be the guiding lesson to all statesmen and all empires let us pursue the right and leave the consequences to him who rules the fate of war and guides the nations to the promised period when men shall beat their swords into ploughshares and universal peace shall herald the reign of the savior of the world authorities the great work of carlyle on the life of frederick which exhausts the subject macaulay's essay on the life and times of frederick the great carlyle's essay on frederick lord brougham's on frederick cox's history of the house of austria Mirabeau's Histoire Secrète de la Cour de Boleyn, Auvers de Frédéric Legrand, Ranks, Nine Boucher Proustischer Geschichte, Polnitz's Memoirs and Letters, Walpole's Reminiscences, Letters of Voltaire, Voltaire's Adi de Roi de Prusse, Life of Baron Trenk, Gilly's View of the Reign of Frédéric II, Tybalt's Memoirs de Frédéric Legrand, Biographique Universelle, Tronbesteigung Holder. End of Section 21. End of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 8, Great Rulers, by John Lord.